Now it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Catherine Cruz. Ms. Cruz is the host of The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio and a member of HPR's news team. She has been a television reporter in Hawaii since 1983 and co-founded the nonprofit Pacific Islanders in Communication. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Catherine Cruz. Aloha, everybody. Uh, it's a great honor to be here and sh to share the stage with some old friends and some new friends. Uh, please give a, a warm welcome to Claire Hannes. She's an immigration attorney and founder of the Aloha Immigration Law Firm. She's a founding member of the Hawaii Coalition for Immigration Rights and the Hawaii Coalition for Civil Rights and serves on the ACLU of Hawaii Litigation Committee. Doug Chin is a former Attorney General of Hawaii. He was recognized by the Hawaii State Bar Association for his work challenging the President's travel ban against Muslim-majority countries. As a litigation attorney, he focuses on commercial litigation, administrative law, and governmental relations. Gary Okihiro teaches American Studies at Yale and International Public Affairs at Columbia University. He's the author of 12 books, most recently, Third World Studies, Theorizing Liberation. He's a former president of the Association for Asian American Studies. And Tarina Wong is the former deputy director of the Pacific Gateway Center. She's uh, currently its director of immigration services, and she's focused on empowering immigrants, refugees, human trafficking survivors, and low-income residents. So welcome to you all. And Gary, I want to start out with you, because of everybody here on stage, you're the only one that was born and raised here, and you, you know a thing or two about immigration, because you've written a dozen books on the subject, and you grew up near the Aiea Sugar Mill. Absolutely. So I guess started, huh? Yes, get oh, started. Oh, okay. <laughs> thank, thank you all for coming. That's wonderful that you come on this very important subject. Um, and uh, thank you, Zokalo, for bringing us together. Uh, I'm particularly proud to have been born in Hawaii uh, because Hawaii was one of the first states or the leading state under uh, Doug Chin to challenge the Muslim ban. Uh, the present moment, yes, absolutely. Um, the present moment is a vexed one, as we all know, regards immigration. Um, at a time when uh, the federal government separates children from their parents, cages people in cages that are so tiny and overcrowded, um, offering no toothbrush or clean clothing for children, telling women to drink the water from the toilet. That sort of dehumanization of immigrants, the vilification of them, has a long history in U.S. policy, unfortunately. Um, but the present moment is also vexed within that context of history. This idea about the nation of immigrants, that the U.S. is a nation of immigrants, that we welcome immigrants, that diversity is strength and so forth. The Statue of Liberty is a symbol of that open uh, door. But when the statue was dedicated in 1886, just four years prior, the Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, barring Chinese migrant workers from coming into the United States. So some people were welcome, but other people were not. In fact, 
Before the arrival of Asians, the U.S. had no national immigration law uh, because Europeans were all welcomed, but not Asians. So the first law was against Chinese and Japanese women in 1875, and shortly after the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Bureau of Immigration began. And so the whole bureaucracy around immigration came about because of Chinese exclusion. Um, now, if you were to ask American Indians uh, if they welcome these European settlers, I think you'll get a mixed response from them. Um, most of them would understand that their dispossession was the possession of the nation. That is, the nation was built on dispossessing American Indian lands. Um, well, Gary, similarly, how, 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 huh? does, how does your uh, background uh, with your family ties yeah. to the plantation, yeah. how does that right. change your perspective? Thank you for the question, Catherine. <laughs> I'm just getting to Hawaii now. <laughs> but, but the point about this lesson in U.S. history is that ever since the Organic Act in 1900, the laws that applied on the continent became applicable to the Hawaii. Right? And those immigration laws that barred Asians, beginning with Chinese, then Japanese, Koreans, uh, South Asians, and Filipinos, uh, were part of the legacy that became U.S. Uh, Hawaii's immigration laws. All right? And there are similarities also. While European settlers uh, settled the nation, European settlers also settled Hawaii. And if you ask Hawaiians if they welcome settlers, I think you'll get different responses also. Maybe some among the Ali might have welcomed some of them, uh, but among the masses of people, they were worried that their lands were being confiscated, that their culture was being um, eroded, and so forth. Um, now, Hawaii became a kind of multicultural place, largely because of the sugar industry in Hawaii that recruited labor from around the world, um, mainly Asian labor. So beginning with the Chinese, then the Japanese, Koreans, Filipinos, all came under the auspices of recruitment for labor. And I don't consider that as immigrants or immigration, you see. I see them as migrant workers. And migrant workers sign contracts. They sign contracts for a limited period of time. And the expectation is they'll go back once they finish their work. Um, that's different than those who choose to come and they intend to settle. Now, that's not to say that they did not settle, because many of them did, in fact, uh, do that. So then they became settlers also. But their original introduction was through that means of labor. So you've got the economic forces at play uh, that uh, actually help to shape what Hawaii is today. You know, the last sugar uh, plantation closed on Maui recently. And we're in a whole different realm, and, and the political climate is different. And Doug Chin, if you could maybe talk about you know, your time as the state attorney general and what you had to do in order to deal with this climate and, and uh, the, the approach to immigration. Well, I think the climate that is probably the most difficult thing for all of us to be able to deal with in, in the last couple of years is just this whole sense that 
um, what seems so obvious is just not something that, um, that will even pass through some of the highest officials in the land. Um, so, so to me, I mean, when I think about the, uh, the, the uh, challenge that we, uh, the state brought against the, the Muslim ban and how it was eventually decided by um, the five-person majority, um, I, I was really struck by how um, it was a five-to-four decision, right? So you got the five conservative justices voting one way um, in favor of uh, President Trump and then the four dissenting justices. Um, the four dissenting justices, they, uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote this very scathing dissent where, where, she, where she said, uh, it, you, you couldn't have anything more obvious um, it, it, than, than a president who's saying uh, that he's calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslim, Muslims coming into the United States. Like, how much more obvious can you be than that? Uh, and, and yet the, the five people in the majority were, were still able to somehow gloss over that. And, and still somehow able to say, uh, even though that's the case, uh, we need to respect and defer to the executive branches. You know, perhaps they don't choose their words correctly, um, but, but they still have uh, a priority in terms of national security, and so we're gonna read in uh, a little more to be able to work that out. So, so when I kind of apply that to, to just like today's events or, or just things that we, we look at today, with, uh, look, look at in the, in the past couple weeks with the impeachment proceedings and, and other things that happen, um, not just impeachment, but, but so many other things that happen uh, right now in, in the U.S. government. I, I think that's what strikes me is, is that sometimes you feel like you're going crazy. Like, like, like something just seems so obvious. This is so discriminatory. This is so wrong. Uh, and, and yet you have people um, up there who are in, in very high positions of power saying, no, no, this is not, um, you know, that's, it's just a joke. Or, you know, you know they're, they're not really being serious when they're saying that this is really what they mean. And, uh, and so I think that's the world that we live in, and it's troubling. Well, share with us about your roots and what it was like for you, you know, given the history of the Chinese Exclusion Act and, and being there at the Supreme Court uh, with this case. Right. You know, um, my, my mom passed away earlier this year, and, and so, uh, which I, I'm only bringing up because then um, I actually have been trying to spend a lot more time with my father. Um, and and uh, one of the things that I, I, I think most of us who are Asian Americans get is your, your parents, my parents never talked about their time in China. I mean, they just never spoke about it. Uh, you know, we just talk about food and we talk about uh, school and, thing, and things like that. Um, so I, I've actually felt very motivated to ask my father a lot more about, you know, what was it like when you came over? And, and he proceeded to tell me a, a very long story about just how when, when my parents came to move to Seattle in the 1950s, it was during the time when the Chinese Exclusionary Act was still in effect. And, um, and it really took a, a lot of advocacy from, it was actually a, a Christian missionary um, that, that um, kind of adopted them, uh, really advocated for them, got them situated at the University of Washington, taking classes there. Um, and, uh, and so there was a major effort to, to get them uh, to, to be able to do that. But, uh, but you know, I, I think that's really what, what I, I see is that you know, so for, so many, for so many people, um, they're looking for that chance to be able to have that opportunity. My parents took a big risk, and, and as a result of that, you know, my sister and I were able to um, be Americans and, and have the lives that we had. And Claire, you're from the Midwest. <laughs> Toledo. Toledo, Ohio, and uh, you do you know, so much work, uh, immigration work, uh, 
t share with us, you know, why you got into this field and, and, and how you see the landscape today. Mm, yeah, so I, I didn't grow up um, close to my immigrant past at all either, really. My um, great-grandparents were all from um, different parts of Europe. And, um, but I did grow up in a very um, progressive uh, family. And um, so social activism and social justice were um, just part of what I was raised around. And um, I'm a product of the, the, the Reagan years, for better or worse. Those were my kind of formulative years in, um, in junior high school and high school. And so looking at the, the wars that were being waged in Central America and the refugee crisis that, um, that came because of that and how the United States was refusing to recognize these individuals as refugees because we were the ones that were causing the, the problems that were driving them from their countries in the first place, right? So we weren't going to recognize them as, as, as being refugees. And then, um, so just an interest in that and then, um, and then life with my now husband um, who, who was a PhD student at the time at Arizona State took us to Phoenix where I uh, worked with an organization that was a sister organization in the sanctuary movement and was really impressed with the attorneys that I met there who were um, doing work with around refugees and asylum, um, but also immigration in general. And, thought that immigration law represented the kind of the, all the things that I was most interested in wrapped up into one area, social services and social work and international issues and domestic issues. And um, you, know, you get really deep into the lives of your clients, which, um, which, which is, it's, it's a privilege and sometimes a burden because you take that with you to sleep. Um, Sometimes, but um, but that's been that's been my history, and so I, I went to law school here at UH and graduated 20 years ago, and have been working on um, you know directly practicing immigration law and then immigration advocacy. I think is part of that mission. And so, how do you see Hawaii uh, in this day and age? You know, as far as welcoming uh, the immigrants that have arrived on our shores. Well, yeah, and when we talk about immigrants, right, I mean, it's a super broad group of people. So, I mean, the experience of, of um, you know, I, I, one of my U.S. citizen clients who, who marries a Japanese tourist is going to be very different from um, the Honduran asylum seeker or, um, or the Micronesian who um, uh, ends up in, in, in removal proceedings um, due to bad choices. Um, so I, I think we're, we're, we're probably, this discussion, we're looking at those who are more kind of on the bottom, right? Um, those who are maybe um, undocumented because they, they came into the United States with no status or they came legally and then overstayed the vulnerable populations of, of um, immigrants. And then, um, and then those from the, the compact states, I think, are, you know, again, in a different situation than um, than a lot of the, you know, because of, of class. So I would grade, I was thinking about this, and I, I think I would grade Hawaii as kind of a, maybe a C plus, B minus, in terms of um, how we rank as far as other states. I think there are some things that Hawaii does well. Um, uh, we have a limited purpose driver's license um, that um, we, we worked on getting passed through the legislature a couple years ago, realizing that federal policy, we, we could not make a difference in, in, in the federal laws, so we needed to see what we could do locally to make things 
kinder and gentler for immigrants were. And one of the things we were hearing was people needed to be able to, to drive. People, or people were driving anyway, but they needed to be able to drive with insurance and not worry about getting stopped and, and getting um, uh, cited for driving without a license, which would then sometimes lead to you know, interaction between local police and, and federal law enforcement. And so, you know, a stop sign violation could end someone up in deportation proceedings. And so the fact that we were able to get that passed is, is um, I think, significant and a, a benefit to all immigrant communities here. Um, we have um, in-state tuition um, for, um, for DACA. Basically, you know, anyone, regardless of their immigration status, if they're Hawaii residents um, at, at the university, which is huge. Um, we have growing legal um, social services. We, there was kind of a, a big hole in terms of, you know, there's no public defender system in um, the immigration court system, but now through um, the Immigration and Refugee Law Clinic at the law school and, um, and the legal clinic, which is based at, uh, just opened at, out of um, First United Methodist Church, there are, um, there are groups rising up to start to fill the need of those with, um, with immigration legal problems, um, which is significant. Um, but we fall short, I think, in a lot of ways, too. Um, we, uh, we've not been able to get um, some kind of sanctuary-type designation passed. Um, we uh, don't have state-funded or city and county-funded legal services um, for people in removal proceedings, and some places do. Um, I think, you know, we don't have a, a large anti-immigrant population, but we have um, a lot of people who are, are very quiet, and that doesn't really do much to help either. So I think more people who are, um, you know, advocating for, um, for, for better immigration policies or, or for better conditions for immigrants here, this would be a good time to, to kind of step up and find your voice. And uh, I don't know what you're hearing from your clients. I mean, I just know when I you know, listen to the headlines, I get very stressed out, yeah. even though I have no you know, major immigration issues affecting my life. But I don't know what you're hearing from your clients out there. Uh, people are super, super, super stressed out. Um, I mean. I had just just a short story, a random phone call I had when I was in the Costco parking lot, and my work phone is my cell phone, which is maybe not a good idea, but I answered it, and it was just someone who just wanted to ask a quick question about naturalization. She was calling from the Big Island, and she was all concerned about getting her, um, her N-400, her naturalization application, in before October 15th, which was when this new public charge rule was supposed to take effect which basically, you know, the, the administration, they can't change the laws, but they can tweak the rules to really, um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's class-based, which is connected to race-based, and so she was all concerned about how to answer this one question so that she could get it filed before October 15th, and I said, well, actually, the, the rules don't have to do with naturalization anyway, and, 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 and the good news is that there were, you know, three federal court decisions that, um, that, that put a stay to that. She broke into tears on the phone. I, I didn't know what was going on. And she, um, I said, are you okay? And she said, oh my God, I'm just so relieved. Thank you. You're my angel. Thank you for telling me this. I'm like, well, it's, you know, she wanted to know where she could Google it to kind of verify it. But that's where, um, that's where people are just, um, they're really, really, really on edge. 
And um, it's it's not something that people will will talk about, um, uh, you know. To I mean, and we all probably have friends who have friends who are living on the edge, of, and they, we don't know it because you know your immigration. It's not like you can look at someone and and tell by their their color, their age, what their immigration status is. Um, but I think there are, there are a lot more people living among us, probably folks in this room right now, who don't have. Um, a stable immigration status right now in the United States, and it is a very, very scary time. You know, Claire and Tarina, you are in the trenches. I am. You know, uh, share with us what, what you're seeing with the clients that walk through Pacific Gateway. I really do concur with, um, with Claire. Immigrants, refugees, and asylees come to Pacific Gateway Center, and I feel their anxiety I feel their frustration. They come from, from backgrounds that are characterized by turmoil, by anguish, by uncertainty. And so they come here with hope. They come here with dreams. So what we try to do is to really do a lot of hand-holding. And we try to, through our strategies and through our interventions, and through our initiatives, try to mitigate all of these challenges and obstacles that are presented before them. And we do it step by step by step. And even though there are a lot of details and the systems to navigate are so complex, you just have to be there with them and explain every single step along the way. And so the whole goal, I think, for social services agencies, as well as all of the stakeholders who are involved with the successful resettlement and transition of our immigrant population, is to give them a sense of belonging, a sense of strong belonging to our community, and to provide services with care and compassion. And so this is what we try to do. And I think maybe folks, um, it would be helpful for folks to understand, because you see both refugees and asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what's the difference and uh, where are they coming from? Well, you know, with regard to refugees, basically I think the definition of refugees and asylum seekers are basically the same. They uh, are fleeing their countries because of fear of persecution based on race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or member of a social group. The difference between a refugee and asylee is the refugee is overseas, and they need to apply for refugee status to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Asylees have that, that, those same characteristics, but they're already on U.S. territory, they're already here, and they ask for sanctuary here in the United States for protection. The refugees have already gone through a very extensive vetting process, both at the United Nations level, that goes through several, two or three vetting. And bear in mind, the refugee, in order to go through the refugee process, it takes at least two years. Extensive vetting process at the United Nations level. Then if they get through that, then there's the uh, USCIS level, I believe. And so there's maybe 1% of the world's refugees, and bear in mind there's about 70 million refugees now in the world, 
that maybe less than 7% get through to resettlement into the United States. And then what happens is those refugees who are referred to the United States by the UN, there are about 12 to 15 partner agencies, which they in turn have affiliate partners throughout the United States. Our, our partner affiliate for Pacific Gateway Center is the United States Commission on Refugees and Immigrants. So refugees do not just appear at our door like asylum seekers do because they're already in the United States. They have to be referred to us by our partner agency, USCRI. And then from there, the process of resettlement is really quite complicated. There is a there is a program called Reception and Placement, which is a federally funded program. And we receive federal funding to help resettle refugees. And, you know, it is a very, we have 90 days to do it. It's a, there's a very prescriptive time frame, as well as there's a lot of very specific details involved with resettling which hopefully helps to create the sense of welcoming. But just to give you an example, for pre-arrival services, we have to make sure that there is housing. Within the housing, we have to make sure there's a bed for everyone. We have to make sure there are linens. We have to make sure there are household furnishings. We have to make sure there are appliances and that each of the appliances work. We have to make sure that there's locks on the door and the windows work. If there are children, we have to make sure there are toys. Um, we have to, there is, a, there is a requirement for an airport pickup. At the airport pickup, if there's a child, we have to make sure there's a car seat. And this is how prescriptive it is. The first meal a refugee has when they arrive in Hawaii, it has to be culturally sensitive. In fact, for example, we, um, we resettled a Ukrainian refugee about six or seven years ago, so we could not serve him a sushi dinner for, for, his, first, for his first meal. It had to be culturally sensitive. So it's very, very prescriptive. Uh, how's the funding for that? How the the funding, funding comes from the federal government. But is there... And there's cash assistance that comes, that can go, that is applied directly to the refugee to help them resettle. And then there is also funding to help support the social services agency. But is, is that funding dwindling? Well, that's a very good question because since the current administration, bear in mind that in 2012 we had U.S accepted 75,000 refugees, and I hear in 2020 it'll be as low as 18,000. So for Pacific Gateway Center, the funding has ceased. At least for now, refugees to Hawaii is now in hiatus, at least from our USCRI partner agency. Can you talk about uh, a lot of our new immigrants, we have a lot of uh, folks from the comp who are under the Compact of Free Association that come in from Micronesia. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's been a lot of tension, I think, because um, you see them, you know, with the social services and the, and the housing, and I, I think there's competition for services. Can you talk about what you're seeing with those clients? Well, you know, I don't know whether or not it's competition, but, you know, it 
you know, this is where we could probably do a lot better with our Pacific neighbors. You know, the federal government gives us about $11 million, uh, but it costs Hawaii $163 million to help support our Pacific Island neighbors uh, with social services, with, uh, they come here especially for uh, medical purposes. They have diabetes, kidney dialysis, that sort of thing. Those kinds of services are not found um, in, in, in their home country. So they come here for medical reasons. And so when Linda Lingle pulls a rug out under them and no longer qualifies them for our state, our state uh, insurance company, they feel totally abandoned. So that's why um, sister agencies and Pacific Gateway Center worked very hard to get them all signed up with Obamacare and, um, and the Affordable Care Act. So there's a lot of work that we can still do working in conjunction with wonderful organizations like We Are Oceania and others to help mitigate the many challenges that are faced by our um, by the Micronesian population who come to Hawaii. And for folks who don't know, Micronesia is comprised of many tiny islands and different island nations, different cultures, different languages, and so everybody is lumped together as Micronesia, and we were talking Palau, Chuuk, uh, Ponape, and, and, and there are lots of major cultural differences. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's one thing with regard to resettling immigration, uh, immigrants and refugees and asylees is the whole factor of they're all limited English proficient. So that compounds resettlement immensely. And that's why, thank goodness, we do have organizations. I know Pacific Gateway Center has a Hawaii language bank to help with, um, with interpretation and, and, and translation. But this is very true. I mean, depending upon what part of the island you live, it's a completely different, it's a completely different language. And Gary, what are you seeing? I mean, you've studied, you know, this whole immigration thing, and you've turned the stone over and over. Uh, given the times that we're at and the legal issues that uh, you've been watching, uh, you know, at our highest court. Uh, well, well, historically, I think what the lesson I see is that immigration laws, the United States um, defines itself. The immigration laws. The immigration laws that encourage certain people to come, and then the immigration laws that restrict other people from coming. That defines who becomes citizens of this country. And within those immigration laws, then, are the values being held by those who pass those laws. Uh, just as an example, the 1924 Immigration Act uh, favored Northern Europeans, and as you went farther south, you got less and less quotas for Italians, Greeks, Turks, and so forth. All of Africa, all of Asia, all of the Pacific Isles had only 100 per year that they could enter. That shows the value of the leaders of the country about who they wanted as members of this nation. And since 1965, that changed with Asians and Latinx people coming to these shores. That was unintended by the makers of that. Um, so I think the present moment, we see a kind of pushback against that kind of um, flow of immigrants. And again, that's trying to define who is an American. 
So it's like we had the welcome mat out, and now there's a mat that says, go away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Doug, you know, when you were uh, arguing your case uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, how are you looking at the, I guess, at the, uh, at the force at which, you know, they were pushing back? Well, I, I think a lot of it just had to do with, um, ultimately, it's, it's the, the balance of powers between the three branches. And so, so what I, I really saw the, the majority justices focus on um, was this deference to um, the executive branch. So basically a deference to the president to be able to do whatever they wanted. Um, there was actually a, a really striking moment um, at the, uh, what's called the Ninth Circuit level, so kind of the intermediate level between the federal court here in Hawaii and then all the way to the US Supreme Court. Uh, where the Solicitor General from, uh, from the U.S., Noel San Francisco, so the guy who argues so many of the cases right now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of the, the, um, the president, um, he was asked this question um, by one of the Ninth Circuit judges who was asking questions about the Muslim ban, saying, so suppose the, um, suppose the president woke up one morning and decided that for national security reasons, um, he was going to declare a ban on all people from all countries coming into the United States. Um, then the question then was um, to the Solicitor General, um, do you believe that our courts have the ability to review that kind of decision? If the president just woke up and decided for national security, I'm going to ban all countries from coming in. And so the answer from the Solicitor General was, was the the, the courts cannot review that decision. That, that's, what the, that's what the Jeff Sessions Attorney General would go that, back it up, but it's not that it got any better, but, but, it's, um, but that's, what, that's, what they were, uh, that's what they were arguing was they were saying it's not reviewable. And, um, and it, it, was, it was amazing because, I mean, first of all, the, the three judges who were sitting there in the Ninth Circuit, they didn't like that answer at all. Um, but, but it was also just so, it was so shocking to see that that's, um, that's where the, um, the Department of Justice was going. And, and, so, and so I think when, when it comes to being able to set sort of immigration laws and policies, uh, you can really see that as long as we have courts uh, that are gonna then say, well, ultimately we're, gonna, we're not gonna second guess um, the elected guys, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna let them set whatever policy that you have. It just shows you, well, that's why it's so important uh, that, that you really track um, who's being elected because it's not just, um, it's not just the, the, the laws that they pass or, or what they, um, or what they uh, end up setting in terms of the programs and, and ways that they limit people. I, I think it also comes from the kind of the bully pulpit of, of just the things that they can be able to say and, and talk about. And, and so um, I, I think what really struck me uh, when we were researching the topic to, to make our arguments was just the whole idea of how um, it, it always starts by um, denigrating a certain population and just making them seem less than human. You know, so, you know, so in other words, labeling all Muslims as terrorists, right? You know, so it's, it's almost like it's such, a, um, it's such a common thing to say in the, in the last 20 years that, that it almost just because it's, it's horrible. It's like we're all programmed to just immediately believe that um, when it's not true. And, and so, um, and I think that that's something that's been repeated over and over in history, whether it was Muslim people or whether it was Chinese people, uh, you know, taking over the whole country with their, you know, by coming in and, and building railroads or whether it was um, Japanese people who were placed in internment camps, um, things like that.
Is there anything um, else that you can share, any other story uh, when you were State Attorney General, any other immigrant story that you came across with? Well, goodness. I, I mean, I just think that the, um, the, I think what really, I'll, I'll just share this, is that a couple weeks later, a couple weeks ago, um, I actually heard from some, one more of the persons who's on the, on the team that we had um, and, and it wasn't just, by the way, it wasn't me, it was, it was, it was, there was a team that we had in the office and then we also had some Washington DC folks that, that really um, donated a lot of their time. And, and in fact, um, Neil Katyal, who's off and on, um, he's, he's, he's a very uh, famous lawyer, he was the one who argued the case at the US Supreme Court. Um, but uh, they just, uh, we, we just found out that one of the um, individual plaintiffs that had been joined in, who was a Hawaii resident, who was part of our case in Hawaii versus Trump, who, who wasn't able to get um, their son into, uh, into the US because they couldn't get a waiver. A waiver was denied. Um, the waiver was just granted um, and just two weeks ago. And so, you know, so here we are in 2019, and, uh, and I was getting a text uh, saying that uh, he was heading down to the, um, the airport right then to, and, and that they'd landed, uh, the son was there with his own daughter and, and they'd made it in. And so, and so to me, that, that was a, a very gratifying moment because it just shows that you know, as much as we uh, try to, we, we fight and we think that we're gonna lose or, or, or we do lose or th you know, things like that, um, that ultimately um, there are results that, that come along the way. And Claire, I know the stories don't always have a happy ending in, in a lot of the, mm your clients' cases, it, it, it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, uh, just Doug, listening to you talk about that story, I just think about, you know, that family was separated for so long and for what, and they didn't even know if, if the waiver would ever be, be granted. And I've seen, um, you know, there, there have been victories in keeping families together locally, um, but uh, there are fewer and fewer. Um, and that's, um, yeah, that, that, that really, I mean, it, it takes a toll on me. It takes a, a far greater toll, of course, on those families. And, and, um, but, but any of us who are, who are um, touched by their lives um, feel, um, feel that pretty deeply. So, um, you know, I, I would encourage, we do have an, an, um, two full-time immigration judges in Honolulu. Um, and if you ever have any time on Monday, Wednesday, <laughs> the judges are gonna love me for saying this. <laughs> oh, they don't love me anyway. Um, Mondays and Wednesdays, 8.30 a.m., eighth floor in the federal building, you can go to immigration court and you can just, it's, the court's open and you can sit in on what's called, they have master calendar hearings where um, sometimes there will be 20 people all scheduled at 8.30 in the morning, and it is a fascinating cross-section of humanity. And, um, and you get to, um, it, it's like their lives are super exposed. You get to hear, you know, they have to admit to or, or deny the charges of when and how they came in. Um, asylum cases are closed. Um, but oftentimes, if the, it's, it's a strange system. If the person is seeking asylum or um, lodging an application, the person will sometime have to say, you know, why they're seeking asylum. And that's, that's in an open court, which is a, um, a, a, it, not, not the best way to do it. But there are, um, 
um, you know, the, the courts are the courts are backlogged. Um, we've seen um, again. We haven't seen changes. We've seen changes in the laws in that the the Board of Immigration Appeals, um, you know, which all falls under the Department of Justice. They've issued some really horrible decisions under Jeff Session and now under Barr that have especially impacted um, asylum and have really curtailed um, the ability for um, people who were um, victims of domestic violence or victims of, of gang violence to qualify for asylum. And those are, the, those are the, the, the grounds for a lot of the cases that we see locally and that are being seen um, on courts throughout um, the continent. Um, uh, and we've also seen, um, locally um, with, with ICE enforcement, you know, we haven't seen raids here. I, I, I'd be a little surprised if, if we did. Um, but what we have seen is that this is where like the discretionary aspects where sometimes, or oftentimes there'd be someone who had say a final order of deportation because they lost their case in immigration court. Not because it wasn't a good case, but because the standard for winning a case is like ridiculously high. And so a lot of people have very strong, they have US citizen children or spouses. They've never done anything wrong other than cross into the United States. Um, without inspection, and they lose their cases. So if there were compelling humanitarian uh, factors, then ICE would allow them, ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement, would allow them to, to stay kind of year after year after year um, out of discretion. You had to make a case for it, but you could. Those, those days are gone. Now when people go to check in, they want to know what's your, what's your plan for departure. And they don't, you know, they don't love locking people up, um, but, they, um, but they will. If you don't have a plan for departure, they will, they will come and find you, or they will detain you right there. Um, uh, if we can um, maybe wrap up and go back to this whole idea is Hawaii, you know, welcoming immigrants. Um, we've got about a minute or so left, but it, it, it was it has it been your experience? We don't have a Native Hawaiian perspective here tonight, but but uh, had, you know, you come across anything to kind of indicate that you know they are welcoming um, in the cases that you've covered? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I've I've had. Um, you know, lots of conversations with with Native Hawaiians about you know, the work that I do, and people are, I think, are, are the, the people that I've had contact with are um, very understanding of the reasons that people leave the places that they're that they're forced to leave from. Um, even understanding that that does um, increase the number of settlers here um, in in Hawaii. Um, I've had really uh, compelling cases, one recently of a, a, a woman who was um, almost 100% Hawaiian from the Big Island who was married to a man from Honduras. And to see the way that um, community came together was, was, was really beautiful. And that, this is where really it was like love conquering everything else. It was... Um, uh, it was aloha. It was, I mean, in, in, in like really like in the in the purest, most like colorblind sense. Um, so, um, so I, yeah, I, I think native, I think native populations understand that people get screwed all over the world and and do what they need to, you know, do what they need to do, and so they don't begrudge. Um, again, in, in my maybe limited experience, people who um, are are trying to um, to save their lives and do the best they can for themselves and for their families. So a bit of shared oppression, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you look exactly. At it and we're very fortunate that we don't have an organized, 
you know, anti-immigration militia here, like a, like a lot of communities do on the continent. I mean, we have the, the you know, the yahoos here and there, and the, some of the some of the comments in the in the newspaper will often be really, really negative and ugly. And and I mean, I think you scratch the surface, like a lot of things in Hawaii, and there there is a lot of um, racism and prejudice. But but at least you know you don't have people when when we've had pro-immigrant marches. There's no anti-immigrant countermarch, um, so I, I think that that speaks well of where we are. All right. Well, I, I certainly thank all of you for participating, and I think um, maybe it's time to do some Q and A from the audience. My question is: um, one of the most abhorrent policies with this administration in regards to immigration is the detention of the children, and it's it's just you know, devastating and unacceptable. And, you know, I mean, couldn't something be done about this much more quickly than it's happening, even at the United Nations and basic human dignity? And it's, it's just so devastating to these children for the rest of their lives. It's just unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they answer that. Well, I, I mean, the damage that's being done to them is going to, um, to them and to their families, you know, live on for generations, and it's, I, I you know, I some, I have two kids. I have a 16-year-old now and an 18-year-old, and and they hear us talk about these issues all the time, and they hear it on the news. And I know we lived in Australia for a while, and Australia has a horrible policy towards keeping refugees um, from from ever reaching the shore. And I thought when we lived in Melbourne, like, why isn't everybody in the street all the day, like every day about this, because it's so horrible, this, this, where people are you know, sewing their, their, their lips shut and burning themselves just because the, out of the desperation. And then, and then look what we're doing here. And you know, we've, um, it, it's been challenged. We've, we've been in the streets. I think you know, we should all be in the streets a lot more. Um, it's, but I think for my kids, like how, like, they're growing up seeing all these things happen and see like how power, you know, what kind of democracy is how powerless we are because it's, it's criminal um, what the United States is doing. And we're in a little bubble here in Hawaii. We're away from the border. Um, it's, not, um, it's not in our faces at all. Um, but the policies that are also forcing asylum seekers to, you know, Guatemalan asylum seeker to seek asylum in like El Salvador or in Mexico, I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, give money to the ACLU. I mean, I mean, right? I mean, I mean, there, there are, there are group. It, it has to get challenged through the court, through elections, and through the courts, um, or we have to start burning things. Or, I have a five-second answer, which is just inter the international law process is very, very slow. So I, I think that's why, even though those forums exist, um, it, it's almost faster, yeah. more, more efficient. If it's relatively more efficient to be able to uh, take these other routes. I'm just wondering why there is so much discrimination against Micronesians in our Hawaiian society and what we can do about it or what, or, or what are things that we are doing about now and why are we falling short there? Well, I think one of the reasons might be, you know, I've talked to um, some Micronesians who are active in the community and, you know, actually we have talked about, you know, better preparing Micronesians before they come and giving them an orientation as to what to expect, what the cultural values and the cultural norms are, because a lot of it, I think, 
is due to a lot of cultural misunderstanding, uh, cultural conflicts um, between our norms of behavior and what their norms of behavior are. And can as you give us an example of that? Yes, for example, I, I can give you a very specific example. We, got a, we received a call at Pacific Gateway Center from, from one of our city council people, and she received a call from a constituent with regard to Micronesians in, in his apartment complex that are making way too much noise, way too much noise, and they had people parking all over. And so she was wondering, well, is there any cultural reason that we should know about that might explain this kind of behavior? And so we, you know, one of the advantages of being in the trenches is that we're very close to these ethnic groups and we're trusted amongst, amongst them. And when I talked to uh, one of our Chukis members, um, she said, and I get, she indicated that many times, and in this particular case, there was a death in the family. And it is a cultural uh, practice for every specific village to go at any time and to sing to the family to help provide them with comfort and with strength. And apparently this is what was happening. And so when you understand the cultural reason behind some of these um, behaviors and actions, you begin to be more empathetic and sympathetic. Um, I mean, do any of you have some other things to share? I, I know for me, Initially, it was sort of the, the cultural misunderstanding piece that, that plays a role. There's always a group at the bottom. Huh? There's always a group at the bottom, right? And, yeah. and, and now, it's, now it's the Micronesians. And then, of course, you know, with the, with, with the houseless issues that we have here and the lack of, the lack of affordable housing, and that's yes. something that's going to hit a population that's... Um, so um, you know, economically um, desperate as as a lot of those folks are. So they're, so they're so they're they're visible, and that makes it easy to 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 be the group to uh, to poke at. And the general question is, uh, how come Hawaii? Since we've learned with the Chinese, Japanese, and all the other uh, iterations before, how come Hawaii doesn't have an established uh, process of the latest or for the latest ethnic wave? So right now, I, I kind of imagine like what the Irish. I'm not Irish but what they went through uh, as they came through, and that's what I correlated to. Uh, but just like the Marsh, uh, Micronesians and Marshallese and everybody in that uh, area are the latest wave. If you go to any restaurant in the back house, you see a lot of people working that are cooking food for people to eat, and they don't understand that some of that food is being cooked by people that are looked down upon, but they're enjoying the meals and they're paying the prices that they pay over there. Uh, that was the point that I wanted to make, but the guy got it before me. The other thing was uh, sanctuary status is I think we are spoiled by isolation because if people could get here, there would be like the ultimate Logan's run. And you have to Google that for that reference there. The question is, uh, the, how come we don't have it established when we've experienced uh, the immigration process? Because what I see from you, Ms. Uh, Tarina, is you're helping to navigate the process but we, in the military, they establish SOPs and all that kind of stuff with lessons learned and all that kind of good stuff. But thank you for illustrating the iceberg that we're all uh, experiencing. But how come we can't get 
the uh, heads together, and nothing is easy. So that's the that's the softball question. I do know that you know it's 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 very difficult, and resettlement is uh, very is very complex, and it requires it requires everybody in the community. It requires you know education. It requires health. It requires the government. It requires um, it requires everyone, and so. You know, I know there is an interagency council, uh, which includes all of the major stakeholders who are responsible for, for helping to resettle immigrants and refugees, coming together to talk about issues, seeing uh, what policies can, we, can, we can come up with to introduce into legislature, into the legislati legislature, but, um, I know, it's, I, I really don't have a, an adequate answer for that. Can I just add something? Uh, I remember I was talking recently with uh, uh, Esther Kiaina, and she's done a lot of work uh, with the Micronesian community, and she shared with me that she was in, oh gosh, I'm thinking it was uh, Arkansas, where they have a large Micronesian community, and she actually went into a bar where the Micronesians had to enter um, you know, through a back door. And so the bar had basically a curtain, and there was a front room where everybody else could enter, but the Micronesians, who many of them worked at the uh, chicken plant, the Tyson's chicken plant there, they had to enter through the back door. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's startling to think that that still happens in this day and age. Several of these talks, and I want to, um, first of all, say that I'm extremely grateful to have the, the depth um, and this, the, the seriousness of the conversation today. Um, because there've been a lot of other great sessions, but it's never really tackled the hard issues in a way that I think is happening tonight. So I do wanna express to the Daniel K. Noy Institute and to Zokolo that, the, that how important it is to have these kinds of conversations. Um, the second thing I wanna say is to a certain extent, um, I think we're presuming this issue of people wanting to come to Hawaii as opposed to staying where they are, but federal policies have created an unsustainable situation where they can no longer be there. And so for some of them, it's not a choice, right? They would prefer to live in, in Chuk or Yap. Right? So my question is, you know, for example, um, Papa Mao, when he became ill, knowing that he had to go on dialysis, if he stayed here, it was a death sentence away from his home. He chose to go home even though there was no services, right? So how, how my question is, are we focusing in the wrong place? Are, how do we allow other communities to rise and to be sustainable? Because for a lot of them, that's where they would choose yeah, to live, that's right? So we all wanna live where we belong. I think the fallacy is assuming everybody wants to come here and we have to address that problem. How do we help people stay where they wanna be? And I should probably mention Papa Mao for folks who don't know is Mao Piailuk. He was a navigator uh, in Micronesia who held 
uh, onto this tradition of navigating by the stars. And he came to Hawaii and helped to educate uh, our interested minds, you know, like Nainoa Thompson, and, he, and passing on that bit of knowledge from the Pacific, from the Pacific navigators, uh, that's something that should be celebrated. Uh, and it's, it's a tremendous thing that the Hawaiian culture has, uh, you know, blossomed with this renaissance. It's just amazing with the language and the, and the navigation. But uh, again, uh, Papa Mao from Micronesia shared that bit of information with Hawaii, and uh, we have him to thank for. We have Micronesia to thank for. But I think that it's really important, the, the push-pull factors, right? And so the factors that um, I, most of my clients absolutely would, would rather stay where they were born if they could, if there was opportunity, if there was safety, um, but there's not, right? So, you know, I always think, well, until we even out the global economic system, it's I, like that's that's the reality, and I, unfortunately, I, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So then, people are going to continue doing what they have to do to um, to survive, um, and that's I mean that that's a, that's a tragedy that people can't um, that people can't live where they were born because the things that people give up um, to to come, the risks that they take. Um, I, I don't know if I would have the courage um, to, to do that. I mean, when I've met people, and, and a lot of my clients are undocumented, and I, I think like there are heroes to me. Like, would I have had the strength to, to be able to, um, to make those, that, that choice to leave everything behind and to come to a place where I'm not wanted, um, but to do that so that my mom could have the medications that she needs, or so that my little sister could go to school? Um, I was going to say, I, I think it goes to us um, thinking about what's our role, uh, you know, like, what's our role as Americans? You know, like, in other words, are we, are we isolationist and we just want to take care of ourselves and not think about, you know, just basically close our, close our borders, don't take care of anybody else um, because we have so many problems that we need to take care of at home? Or are we, you know, does, is what it means to be an American is that we're going to be, uh, you know, I think, I think the, the theory would be that we would be exerting leadership um, by being able to take care of other, um, other cultures and, and, and to be able to help them to all thrive and, and do better. Um, so, uh, so I think that's a, that's, a much, that's a much deeper question. I think it even goes to like, what's our even role as individuals? You know, like, are, are we just here to take care of ourselves? You know, or are we here to be able to you know, help the people who are around us? And I think it's important to remember that it's often the policies of the United States that are driving people from their homes in their first place. One of the hard questions that we should all ask ourselves also is not to simply see immigration as people coming here, but what is the role of the U.S. and the world in causing displacement of refugees and so forth? Um, what is the role of the United States um, in displacing people from Central America uh, for yes. them to come to the United States. We know that the refugees from Southeast Asia came because of the war that the U.S. waged in Southeast Asia. So I think that's one of the questions that we should also ask ourselves regarding the immigration. It's not just people coming in, but it's the U.S. going abroad. Yep. But one factor I'd like to add, I was just reading this trend book, and let me just share with you that um, by 2048, 74% 74, 74 of the population growth 
in the United States will be due to international migration. And so it'll be international migration that's going to drive our population here in the United States. And, um, and especially with fertility uh, and, and births in decline. So this is one of the, this is one of the projections that um, they see facing our country right now. My name is Abel Conan, and I'm from Africa. And thank you also for mentioning the role of the superpower in, in creating the mess that we're living in right nowadays. Um, my question is about the relationship between illegality, freedom, and uh, uh, immigrant labor. Because after my observation, the only thing I can see is that people like immigrants, when those immigrants are not free, or when they, 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 um, their freedom is limited. First, for example, where Hawaii, in Hawaii, the case of Hawaii, it was contract labor. People can kick you out anytime if they don't like you and think like that. So they, they're willing to have you around whenever they can abuse you. Same thing for slavery. You don't belong to yourself. So what is the role of illegality or limited freedom in the acceptance of the immigrant? Professor? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, professor. <laughs> Could he kindly repeat the question one more time? <laughs> what is the role, role. of the limit, limited freedom, unlimited uh, freedom, or unlimited legality in the acceptance of uh, an immigrant? For example, black people were welcome in the United States because they were slaves; they were not free. Okay, in Hawaii, they were welcome here because they were part-time contractors, they can kick them out anytime. In South America, whenever they come here, whatever it is, um, they can get rid of them anytime. The status is not really um, stable. So what is the role of limited um, freedom in accepting uh, an immigrant? Well, I, I just, I, it sounds like you're making your point because cause I think that's exactly what happens. I, I think that because uh, I, I think people um, don't really have a problem with, with people coming into the country as long as their freedoms are limited, but, but the, whole, the whole concern is are they going to be taking what I have and, and just having that kind of selfish mindset uh, instead of just kind of a more broad picture in terms of what, what could actually be accomplished by, um, by welcoming them. Um, I mean, I think ultimately the model that we all try to believe in is, is the idea that it's actually the, the, um, the nation of immigrants and, and the idea that we're diverse and that we welcome everybody. Um, that's what is, is what makes America so special and so wonderful. Well, thank you very much. And um, that's about all we have time for uh, right here. But on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I would like to again thank the Daniel K. Inouye Institute. And I also want to thank all of you for joining us. So please stay for the reception. It's in the next room. And continue the conversation. Bring your remaining questions. Uh, and finally, please give another big round of applause for our featured guests.